Please grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9. We're going to finish off 1 Corinthians 9 today, looking at the last few verses. As you're turning there, I should bring to your attention that we do have a mid-year meeting today after this service. It will be relatively short. Uh, It'll be short. Uh, We'll we'll keep it quick. Um, So, yes, please plan on staying for that. Whether you're a member or not, it's a good opportunity to get information about our church, what's going on. We have a financial report and all of that that you can get access to there. So hopefully it'll be about 20 to 30 minutes, but we'll, we'll see what pans out. We'll see how many questions you have uh, and see how long it takes. But we will be in 1 Corinthians 9 this morning, verses 24 to 27 that Tyler read for us earlier. And let me start by saying... Um, as the theme for today's message, the Christian life is not to be approached casually. We see this in the text today, that the Christian life is not to be approached casually. And to illustrate my point, think of um, a time perhaps when you've had your car being worked on and you've had to kill time, you know, something like that. Uh, For me, it was last fall in uh, Frisco, Colorado. I got a little too uh, excited with my brake pedal and burned out some brakes on the way down some hills. And anyway, I ended up putting the car in the shop and my family and I spent some time in Frisco. What do you do when you're just there in a town that you're not familiar with? Well, you just walk around, you go to Walmart and, you know, you go over to the Wendy's or whatever and you just kill time. So think of that in your head as a time where you've just had to kill time. You're out walking around or, or doing whatever, waiting for something to happen. Now think of when you have intentionally planned something out so that you will arrive at a location promptly, or perhaps even running late. Maybe Sunday is a very appropriate time to bring this up where you're really trying to get here on time. And every move you make on your way there is deliberate because you want to save all the time that you can. You're very intentional about your time. Two very different types of getting somewhere, right? Well, which one is the Christian life more like? Which one is the Christian life supposed to be more like? Wandering around to kill time or to intentionally go somewhere with a deliberate mindset? Well, Paul is going to teach us today under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we are to be deliberate. Let's look at verses 24 and 25 together, and then I'll open with a prayer. 1 Corinthians 9.24, Do you not know... That those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Lord, we thank you for this text set before us this morning that we have our eyes fixed on the imperishable prize won for us in Christ that we would look to the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, today as we consider these things. Lord, we thank You that not only have You saved us, but You have left us here. We thank You for that, that You have given us the opportunity in this life to know You and to make You known, that You've given us the opportunity to learn the deep things of God from Your Word and from Your Holy Spirit who guides us and directs us as we seek to follow Jesus in this life. 
God, we thank you that we have the opportunity to be here this morning and to study this word. Cause us to do this rightly, that we wouldn't see these words as just ink on paper, but that we would understand that this is your powerful word. Give us, by your grace, a vision for this week and the days to come of how we are to intentionally live for you and for your glory. And Lord, we ask together that though I am a sinner by nature and by choice, that I would not get in the way of your word this morning, but that by your power, your word would be so clear to your people. Lord, give us a great time looking into this majestic and wonderful and beautiful scripture today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, We left off last week with verse 23, and I do think it would be appropriate for us to back up just one verse and look at that again as we consider the text for today. Paul wrote to these Corinthians saying, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Paul was just explaining in last week's passage how he has become all things to all people. He has adapted his behavior, his customs, in ways that the the grace of God and the truth of God have allowed him so that he can win a hearing with other people when it comes to gospel proclamation. Paul was adapting, not changing, but adapting the gospel message in such a way that people could hear it better. When he was among Jews, he adapted. When he was among those without the law, he adapted. And he used his freedom in Christ for this type of slavery. That's what Paul calls it, is slavery. He's free from all men, and yet he's become a slave of all because his vision was to have the gospel go out among all people. He wanted to be used by God. You see, again, at the end of verse 23, His purpose for all this was to become a fellow partaker of the gospel. He was doing all of this so that he would be a partaker of the gospel, to be an instrument in God's hand, that in his daily life, day by day, the gospel would flow through him, not just in word, but in deed, the way that he loved people and cared for them and set aside himself as the priority of his life and prioritized the community that needed Christ. And God is teaching us that there is great reward in striving for the sake of the gospel. As we consider this uh, passage of Scripture, there is great reward in imitating Paul as he imitates Christ. And Paul's going to say that at the beginning of chapter 11. There's great reward in striving for Christ and doing all things for the sake of the gospel. Because the gospel is not a one-time use message, is it? The gospel isn't like a tissue that you get at the right time and you use it and you throw it away and then you move on. The gospel is a message that changes us in such profound ways that day by day in this life, it shapes our worldview. It changes the way we, we see everything. And through it, through that message, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live a life set apart for God. And to use Paul's illustration today, the Christian life is a marathon race, isn't it? It's not a sprint. Well, perhaps it is for some, for those who have deathbed conversions or something like that. But for the vast majority of us, the Christian life is a marathon race. You are in a race, and you are running this race. Our encouragement is to run well. You've been placed in the race, now run. 
A little bit of background here, and perhaps you've heard this before. It's a pretty popular passage. You've heard sermons on this passage before, I'm sure. In Corinth, they, of course, were excited about the Olympics. Corinth was in Greece, and the Olympics have been going on for a very long time, and people in Greece were always fired up about the Olympics. But on years when the Olympics weren't held, there were the Isthmian Games, and it comes from the word isthmus. It's a Greek word. It's one of my favorite geographical shapes. It's an isthmus. It's a small strip of land that connects two bigger pieces of land. And there's an isthmus near Corinth, and they had their own type of games called the Isthmian Games that would happen outside of the Olympics. And in those games, there would be different activities like those in the Olympics, including running, racing, boxing, and other things. So Paul, writing to those who lived in that area, who were very familiar with those types of games, draws from their culture, draws from their experience to illustrate a spiritual point. So let me read these verses again. Verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. He first draws on the illustration of running. And before we talk about what this means, I want to talk about what this doesn't mean. One of our adult Sunday school classes just started a series on hermeneutics, and hermeneutics are very important. It's the way we interpret Scripture. And if all you had in the whole Bible was this verse, Everybody runs in a race, or all people that are running in a race run, but only one receives the prize, you could end up in some strange places as you seek to interpret that. And no illustration or parable in the Bible is meant to be drawn out to all of its ends. There's always a main point in an illustration, a main point in a parable. So let's talk about what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that we are all put on the starting line and told to run toward our justification in Christ. <laughs> This doesn't mean that all people are set on the, on the starting line and say, okay, run the race, and only one of you is going to win, so run really hard. It doesn't mean that there's justification at the end of the race if we win. That's not what that means. And it certainly doesn't mean that only one person is going to be born again, <laughs> that we all run, and let's see who's the fastest, and that person will get saved. That's not what this means. And it also doesn't mean, because maybe you'll say, okay, well, yeah, that's obvious. Paul's not saying only one person gets saved, etc., but I don't want you to think that, okay, Christians in a race, well, there are some that run fast and some that run slow. Paul wants us to recognize that there's a fast class of Christians and a slow class of Christians. Don't do that either. That's not Paul's point here. Paul's not saying, yes, let's divide yourselves even more, because remember, the Corinthians were already prone to dividing themselves. Paul's not saying, all right, yeah, look around as you run and see who's fast and keeping up with you and see who the slow pokes are and then designate them. That's not Paul's point, so don't let your mind go there either. But what this does mean is that we all have a goal, a prize, a reward that we are striving toward, that we are working toward in this Christian life. As we've been saved and placed in God's kingdom, we've also been placed in a race, and at the end of that race is a prize set there for us. And our competition isn't each other to see who can get the one prize, what one person can get the one prize. Our competition is sin. Our competition is the devil. Our competition is our own flesh, our propensity to just do those things that we should not do. That is our competition in this race. But we're not striving for salvation. We're striving toward our final salvation. 
We're not striving so that at the end we can be born again. We've been born again. And because we've been born again, we've been placed in this race. And at the end of that race is our inheritance, our eternal, imperishable inheritance, the hope of heaven. And so we are running this race together, striving toward this goal together, toward our final salvation. And this is what's called perseverance. Perseverance. It's a biblical word. God has called us not just to be saved, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but to persevere in our faith, to live our lives set apart for Him. And we are to run in such a way, it says, as to win the prize. This means you run like the winner. <laughs> it's quite literally what it means. It's Paul's drawing on a, an illustration from an actual Olympic-type race, run in such a way that you may win. Our running, our striving, our intentionality in this life must be that of one who is setting out to win a race, not one who is there just to gawk, but someone who is there to win. And this is the present active imperative verb that Paul is giving us to run. Now you are to run. It is a command from God for His glory. And Paul's aim here, of course, in the context of chapter 9, was to gain that hearing with the lost world around him. His goal wasn't to run in such a way so that he can be super Christian guy, so that he can puff himself up. His goal was to run the race hard for God so that he can better serve other people, so that he can better proclaim the gospel to people in such a way they can hear. That was Paul's heart, and that should be our heart too as we approach this concept of striving for God. And the prize that we are able to win through this is both eternal and imperishable. You see again in verse 25, the ones who compete in the games, they exercise self-control in all things for a perishable wreath. But we do it for an, an imperishable wreath, a prize that will not fade away. This reminds me of Philippians 3, that we were just looking at a few moments ago. In Philippians 3, Paul says that he presses on. He presses on in this life toward the prize for the upward call of God in Christ. How did Paul reckon his life? How did Paul consider what he was supposed to be doing day by day? Pressing on. Pressing on. And not just pressing on aimlessly, but pressing on toward a prize what the text says. He was pressing on toward the prize for the upward call of God in Christ. That was his desire, to serve God in such a way. Now, the word for prize that's found in our text today, where yours might say wreath, yours might say crown, it's the Greek word Stephanos, where we get the name Stephen, Stephanos. And your translations will have uh, different renderings of that, and that's okay. But as Paul was making reference to the perishable Stephanos, the prize that fades away, Paul was likely, again, referencing these Olympic-type games that were held in Corinth, and at the end, the winner would receive a wreath or a crown of pine branches, uh, a pine tree, snap them together and, you know, weave it all, and you can set it on someone's head or put it around someone's neck. And you know that that won't last long, right? Those pine branches that are disconnected from the trunk of the tree, they won't last long. 
It fades away. Of course, there was more that came with the crown. It wasn't just that they got this you know, piece of sticks. They also got their fame and their glory locally. They were known around the area as the one who won in that particular event that year. Yet all of that fades too, doesn't it? Perhaps some of you were good at sports and set records or something like that. Well, it doesn't take long until someone else comes along and dethrones you. (laughs) You can see banners that uh, high schools will have that'll have the years that they've won their championships, and that's great, but why isn't it every year? Well, because some other team comes and they dethrone them, and those things don't last. They fade away. They perish, just like the banner it's printed on. It will all just fade away. Sounds like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? You work real hard in this life. Well, what do you gain? Someone else comes along and takes it all, and it all just fades away. Well, that's a perishable prize. Yet we see in the text of Scripture that there is a biblical prize, a biblical Stephanos. And I want to give you a tour of some Bible passages, starting with Philippians 4.1. You don't have to flip around. We'll be looking at several. It'll be up on the screen. But in Philippians 4.1, Paul wrote to this church saying, "'My beloved brethren, whom I long to see,' And he calls them his joy and his crown. Paul saw this church that he had helped establish, that he had invested in, he saw them as his crown. Now, we know human souls don't fade away, do they? The body's wasting away, but in the inner man is being renewed day by day. Paul looked at this room full of people, something like this, my joy and my crown. What an amazing statement. 2 Timothy, the end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul wrote to this young pastor saying, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. For those who will love the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes again, they will receive a crown of righteousness. Righteousness doesn't fade away, does it? It's not like a pine branch. It doesn't fade away. James chapter 1, verse 12, "'Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Again, connecting the idea of perseverance in receiving a prize or a crown. It's the crown of life. And the life that comes from God never perishes, never fades away, never ends. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, written to local church elders. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The glory that comes from God doesn't fade away. It's imperishable. It lasts forever. And finally, a couple of references in the book of Revelation, written to the church at Smyrna, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death. And Jesus says, Jesus speaking, I will give you the crown of life, a promise to a church. And then to the church in Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 11, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, or hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown, the crown that Jesus gives. 
And Jesus gives a better crown than the Isthmian games give, doesn't He? Well, although we are not earning our salvation, Scripture is very clear on that, we have to see just from this smattering of verses but several others that the testimony of Scripture is that the crown is not given without perseverance. The crown that God gives is not given without persevering through this life toward your eternal life being recognized in Christ at the consummation of all things. And we see in Paul's passage today that he wrote to the church in Corinth that entering the race, just being in the race itself, doesn't guarantee that you get the prize. Because there are many people who are associated with the Christian movement, aren't there? There are many people who come in and out from among us, and not all of them are of us. This is 1 John chapter 2. They went out from us because they weren't really of us. Entering the race doesn't guarantee the prize. If there's any reason that you're associated with the church or a Christian movement outside of the fact that you love the Lord Jesus and you recognize His finished work in the gospel, there's no prize for you. If you're doing this for yourself, if you're you're doing this for your parents, if you're doing this for anybody else other than the Lord Jesus and His glory and His honor, there is no prize. But for those who have been placed in this race through true belief in the gospel, we strive toward a prize. And God remains faithful. We run into something very interesting in this passage. Look down at verse 27, the last verse of the chapter. And we'll touch on this more in a few moments, but Paul says that he disciplines his body and he makes it his slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, this is interesting. Paul, the apostle who is currently writing inspired scripture, brings up the possibility that he could be disqualified. Now, that is very interesting, isn't it? Because when you think of all people who for sure are in heaven, well, Paul's right up there at the top, isn't he? Of course, Paul knew Jesus. He was saved. He preached the gospel. He articulated deep truths of God. And yet he brings up that he disciplines his body so that he will not be disqualified. Very interesting. Let me share with you a couple of quotes. The first one's real short. The second one's not. But uh, Gordon Fee in his commentary, said, Paul keeps warning and assurance in tension. One of the things that Paul does in his letters is he does bring up warnings. This is a warning passage that you may not be disqualified from the prize, from the inheritance. And yet Paul also wrote quite a bit about assurance, didn't he? The assurance of heaven. And he keeps these two things in tension. Well, why does he do that? And I thought Thomas Schreiner's commentary was just so good. This one takes three slides to get through, so hang in there, okay? If you've got a Gatorade, take a sip. Uh, Thomas Schreiner wrote, Warnings and exhortations to persevere until the end in order to receive salvation are common in the New Testament. At the same time, we see promises that God will preserve His people until the final day. I suggest that the warnings and admonitions in the New Testament are one of the fundamental means used to preserve Christians in the faith. As believers respond to warnings, their assurance is not dampened, but deepened. The need to run the race to the end did not fill Paul with doubt or shake his confidence, 
Instead, the admonition to run the race stimulated him to continue in the faith, and his perseverance bolstered his confidence that he would receive final salvation. Those who do not persevere reveal that they were not genuine. Thus, perseverance is the mark of a true believer. Very good commentary. He says that the warnings in the New Testament and passages like this that make us think, why would you even bring that up? He says that these are a means that God uses to bolster His people. These are a means that God uses not to dampen their faith, but to deepen their faith. That as believers respond to warnings appropriately, they persevere for the glory of God. Yet as unbelievers respond to God's warnings in the way that they do, they are exposed for what they are, truly unbelieving people. So, let's remember our context. How do we run the race well? Well, we lay down our rights for the sake of love. This is Paul's whole point. He's not urging you to get into some sort of Christian program. That's how you run the race well, is to sign up for this, you know, whatever number of steps program there is so that you can be a really good, tough Christian. That's not it. Paul's not giving them some sort of uh, one, two, three, do these things, check these boxes, and that way you will know that you're running the race well. Paul is seeking through the Holy Spirit's power to stimulate their thinking that they would lay down their rights for the sake of gospel love, that they would set aside themselves as the priority and prioritize others in this life, both in evangelism and in the fellowship, that they would serve God by serving others, that that would be their heartbeat for their lives. And their goal is to be, as all Christians' goal is to be, to live for God so that we'll receive an imperishable crown. That's our goal, is to live for God so that we will receive an imperishable crown. So then Paul goes on to make the point in this illustration that you've got those who are striving for a wreath that expire, and they work really hard. So how are you doing? Striving for your imperishable wreath. That's Paul's, you could say, question for us today in this text. We've just discovered we are running a race. God has set us in the race. And now we're told that our lives are to be disciplined. Let's start in verse 25 again and read through the end. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. There are three aspects that Paul brings up to living a life of service to others. And the first one is self-control. We see that in verse 25 that those who compete in the Olympic-type games, they exercise self-control in all things. Have you ever met an Olympic athlete? I've met one that I know of, and it was well after his Olympic uh, games. Well, maybe I've met a couple, but both have been well after uh, they were actually competing. And so you could say they have maybe let themselves go a little bit <laughs> in that they're not preparing for this big event like they would have before. But if you were to meet somebody and Right now is a key time. Last night I was just watching some highlights from the Olympic trials. These people have worked 
not for days, not for weeks, not for months, but for years toward this. And they've been very disciplined. They've watched what they've eaten. They've been careful to exercise and stretch and all those things at the right times and to do all these things meticulously because they are pressing on toward their prize. They are very self-controlled in the way they prepare. And when we think about the Christian life, we are to be self-controlled, aren't we? This is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. We're given the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, on and on, and self-control. We're awarded self-control by God, yet we don't always take it up, do we? We don't always cooperate in ways that show us to be self-controlled. But we must seek this in the Christian life to be self-controlled. Thinking of runners and running in these games, I'll repeat, the Christian life, of course, is a marathon. And we are to be disciplined while we are in this marathon. While we are running the race, we are to be disciplined. We're not preparing for some short sprint later on. We're already in the race. And as we run, we are to be disciplined. We're to maintain a lifestyle that's fit for loving service. This is why God saved you, that you would live a lifestyle fit for gospel love, serving others. And this is our responsibility to do this. This is on us as human beings with brains and spirits that God has placed in us and emotions and all these things that we have. It is now on us to submit those things to God through the gospel on a daily basis, that we would submit to Him to be self-controlled, to be intentional about the way we live, to reject opportunities for prioritizing ourselves because we have countless opportunities for that, but that we would use our freedom for serving others. And this, of course, is especially true in evangelism. How are the nations going to be reached? We were just reading or singing that song, Jesus Saves talking about across the lands, over the seas. How does that happen? How does the gospel get out? It's by people, through gospel love, prioritizing others ahead of themselves. Not just the people who go, but the people who support them at home. John MacArthur wrote this in his commentary, the imperishable, the imperishable prize, that is, requires self-control just as the perishable. The athlete's disciplined self-control is a rebuke of half-hearted, out-of-shape Christians who do almost nothing to prepare themselves to witness to the lost and consequently seldom do. That one hurts a little bit, huh? (laughs) Self-control is vital, especially when we think about how is the gospel going to get out? Well, through Christians who are seeking to live for God. Another aspect, a second aspect that Paul brings up, I said there were three, they're all very closely related, self-control and intentionality. You see in verse 26, Paul brings up another illustration, not just with running, he says he boxes in such a way as not beating the air. This means that the Christian is to reject impulse reaction or feelings-based living. We don't live by what are our cravings that pop up throughout the day, or at least we shouldn't live that way. God has called us to live with intentionality, to view the world as we have been told through Scripture, and to make decisions in our lives reflecting the truth of God. 
Paul was determined to land punches, wasn't he? He was determined in accordance with his strategy to box well. If you ever met somebody who's been in boxing, they don't enter that match flippantly. They don't just sign up for it the day of and say, okay, that sounds good. Of course, there's all kinds of workouts, preparing of the body, but there's also a strategy involved with it. They study their opponent. They seek to find out what their opponent does in the boxing match and what they can do to win. Paul, of course, had a strategy for life, and he implores us to have a strategy, an intentional strategy as we live our lives and how we are going to serve others through self-control and intentional gospel living. Paul's teaching here that our bodies are our slaves. It's not the other way around. There are so many people that go about living their lives thinking that their mind has no control over their body, but their body is in control. My body has a mind of its own. It has all these desires, and there are all these things that I want to do, and I can't help myself. Have you said that phrase this past week, I can't help myself? Well, Scripture teaches that we can help ourselves. Our minds are to direct how we live. Our bodies aren't in control. Your mind is in control of your body. You've been equipped to live that way. And thirdly, we see here too that Paul was set on disciplining his body. In verse 27, I discipline my body, make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I will not be disqualified. The lusts of the flesh are to be fought constantly. Our bodies are to be mastered with discipline. Romans 13, 14. Romans chapter 13, verse 14 says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. It's part of the commission for living a life for God. In 1 Peter 2, 11, we looked at this this past Wednesday night, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. We are to discipline our bodies by waging war against that which has declared war on us. We are to battle against the flesh and sin. It's our Christian duty to have intentional control over our body for the Lord's sake. Now, the text actually says, again in verse 27, where Paul writes, I discipline my body, that word means to make black and blue, to bruise. Paul is saying he's bruising his body in this endeavor. endeavor. And that means that discipline, self-control, intentionality, it hurts. It hurts sometimes. You have to discipline your body in such a way changing your behaviors, changing your patterns to God-honoring lifestyles, you have to do so in a way that's painful. In fact, each and every moment, you're really wanting to commit that sin and you're having that inner battle. You know what I'm talking about. You're going back and forth. You're struggling. Isn't that painful? Doesn't that hurt? This Christian life is truly a battle and it's work. This is striving working toward the goal. But let me tell you this too, even though it's painful and even though it's work, it's good. It's good. Because God is conforming you to the image of His Son. You're being conformed to the image of Christ in this life as you wrestle with these things. So how do you do it? Again, it's laying down your freedoms for the sake of love. 
laying down your rights that you have to serve yourself, you could say. Laying those things down for the sake of serving others. That is Paul's heart here for that church, that they would take hold of this. And again, in verse 27, we mentioned this earlier, but now back to it. When you do this, you're also preserving your qualification for the prize. Paul says that he does this so that, and I've taught you that so that is a purpose statement. Why does Paul discipline his body? For the purpose of not being disqualified. He's preserving his qualification as a person who represents the name of Christ in the world. He's preserving his qualification for the prize as he lives a disciplined life. You have to understand that a hypocritical life is disqualifying. A life of hypocrisy is disqualifying from the prize. Because what is hypocrisy? It's a fundamental rejection of everything you say you believe. It's a rejection of the gospel. It's a rejection of truth. It exposes unbelief. When you talk one way in public and live another way, and again, I'm not saying, I've had to talk about this on Wednesday night as we covered 1 Peter 2. This isn't a call to a perfect life. You're not able to live a perfect life. But it's a call to a gospel-shaped life, a life that is full of repentance because you do fail day by day, but you love the Lord your God and you find yourself calling on the name of Jesus, your advocate, and seeking to live for Him and seeking to do better, not for some sort of Christian rank, but for His glory. That's running the race. That's how we're qualified for the prize by God's working in us through the gospel. And a hypocritical life truly is disqualifying. So we should be vigilant so that our wreath is not taken away. You see what happens to athletes when they're caught cheating? Lance Armstrong or others. You have lots of teams lately that have been caught in college because of recruiting things that they've violated or whatever it may be. Baseball, I was a really big Mark McGuire fan when he played for the Cardinals, and he had all those home runs, and no one paid attention to the tail that he had growing out, dragging around first base because of all the steroids he was taking. But all the, you get caught, and now those guys aren't in the Hall of Fame. Those awards are taken away. Those banners are taken down. They're disqualified. It happened in their day too. Those who were caught cheating were disqualified. And we should run in such a way that is disciplined so that we will not be disqualified. This is the strong warning of the passage. It's not a statement that you can lose your salvation. The Bible never teaches that. But it's a warning. It's still a warning. And how do we wrestle with that? Well, again, going back to what we learned from Dr. Schreiner, warnings are means, aren't they? God uses these warning passages to expose unbelievers and to make more bold, to deepen the faith of those who are truly His, to strengthen gospel believers. I want to close with two passages, the first being a passage we already looked at earlier, 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. Again, this is Paul at the end of his life. So Paul, who wrote this passage, talking about running a race, he says in this passage that he has run the race. He's now past tense, talking about he has run the race because he's about to die. And listen to how he considered the life that he lived. 
For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. How did Paul consider his life as he was nearing the end? He sounds like a man who had a clear conscience, doesn't he? He sounds like a man who had joy, doesn't he? He said he kept the faith. Well, that's evident by the way he's speaking. Paul finished well by the grace of God. And I also want us to see Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. As you consider the race you're running, let these words be a final encouragement to you. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. One of the many places in Scripture here in Hebrews 12, we see our responsibility set alongside the faithfulness and grace of God. Set aside the sin that so easily entangles, but keep your eyes fixed on the faithful one, Jesus Christ, the author of your faith, the finisher of your faith, the one who will see you through. Paul wrote to the uh, Corinthians at the start of the letter, and as we've learned about the Corinthians, they're a wild bunch, aren't they? But Paul wrote to them and said that he's writing these things so you're not lacking in any gift awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. He says that Jesus will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the next verse starts with, God is faithful. So we are to run the race well, doing all that we can for the honor and glory of God, who will confirm you to the end because He is faithful. If you're running the race to prove something to yourself or to serve another human being in any way, there's no prize for you. There's no prize. You will stumble, you will fall, you will give up. You won't reach the end. But if you are running this race for the honor and glory of King Jesus, there is laid up for you a crown that is imperishable, a crown of joy, a crown of life, a crown of righteousness that no one can or will take away because He is faithful. Lord, we thank You that You are our God, our Maker, our Redeemer and friend. We ask that as we live this life, we would pursue Your glory by displaying gospel love, laying down our rights, setting aside those things where we're serving ourselves 
so that we would serve others in the church and outside the church, that you would be made much of among the people, that you would be magnified and glorified. Please cause us to see the gospel as a worldview that has been given to us, that daily living is for service, that you would be made much of in our lives. And we thank you that we have the promise of eternal life that no man can take away, that day by day as we strive, we're striving toward this salvation you've promised in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray.